Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us uh, today as we gather and as we uh, worship our Lord, as we get to sing and pray and, and come to his word. And uh, I will just say um, it, it is really encouraging to see uh, this second service so full. Um, I do want to remind y'all, we have a first service as well. And so uh, uh, I'm not saying y'all don't have to come to the second service, <laughs> um, but, uh, but we do have a first service that is maybe a little uh, less full. Um, but um, uh, as we're trying to spread out and try to make room for as many people. So um, you can do with that whatever you wish. Um, don't everybody show up next week to the, uh, the early service because then we just have the same problem. But anyway, uh, <laughs> no, it is a wonderful problem to have and I'm thankful that we can be together and we can look at Psalm 25 because that is the passage we're going to take up this morning. Psalm 25, if you have a Bible, you can turn there in just a moment. The passage will be projected on the screens in front of you. And Psalm 25 is a Psalm of David. It's also an acrostic Psalm. So we know what an acrostic is, maybe uh, growing up, maybe not even growing up, maybe right now in your homes you have a needlepoint hanging on a wall, right? Maybe uh, a relative, a grandmother made it for you, or, or a mom, or someone in your family made you this needlepoint with your name. You know, sometimes kids have it, so, you know, kids, the, the name, your name goes down the left side, Penny, and, and every letter starts a different thing about who Penny is, he's... He's prudent, he's energetic, he's nice, whatever we might want to say. You can fill in the last N and the Y if you'd like. But, but that's what an acrostic is, and, and that's what David is doing in this psalm. Now, we don't see the alphabet showing up in our English translations, but, but if we were to look at the Hebrew, we would see that every line begins with a different Hebrew letter, minus two of the Hebrew letters. So all but two of them. And the reason why acrostics were often used in Hebrew poetry was for remembering. It was a way to remember what the next line was to help them as they were reciting these psalms, as they were singing them or reciting these prayers. But it was also a way of just being poetic. It's a poetic device that they could pray through. They could pray through the alphabet. And what David is praying is, is uh, a prayer to reorient his heart around who God is and what God calls us to. And that's not just a prayer for David or for the original Hebrew audience. That's a prayer for us. We need to be confronted by that every day, right? Who God is and what he's calling us to. And that's what Psalm 25 helps us to see. So if you would, follow along. Psalm, one, Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this portion of it, and ask that as we come to it now, that you would lead us in the way that we are to go. Father, we need your help. We do not know the way. We do not know the path. And so we ask that you would direct us. Even now, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and that you would take us by the hand and that you would lead us so that we would follow you today and all of our days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So weddings have been on my mind the last couple of weeks. This is because uh, last week I had the privilege of presiding over a wedding and, and in a week from yesterday, I'll preside over another wedding. And so I... Think about the different liturgy that I'll be using, the different words that people are going to be saying. I think about the, the homily that I'll give. Weddings are on my mind. And whenever I do a wedding, inevitably I get asked by someone at the wedding, what is the craziest thing you've experienced at a wedding? It's funny, I, I get asked this every single time. I guess they want to know pastors must experience some strange and bizarre things at weddings. And we do. And, and there are times often when they ask me, in fact, most of the time they ask me at the reception, I think maybe they don't want to know beforehand what might could happen during the wedding. So, uh, so this happened this past week. Last week at the reception, I was asked, what are the crazy things? And so two things pop into my mind. It's the first two weddings I ever presided over. One of the weddings, we thought that the grandfather of the groom died in the midst of the service. No, he didn't die. <laughs> That's why I can talk about it now. Um, he, he passed out. He had low blood sugar, but he regained, regained consciousness and was able to still participate in the wedding. So that was, that was a good day. It ended up being a good day. That's the, the first thing that comes to my mind. But the second thing that comes to my mind when I think about crazy weddings is the first wedding I ever did. It was the wedding of my brother. And some of you have heard me share about my brother before in this wedding. It was very picturesque. It was at a country club in Burlington, Ontario, overlooking Lake Ontario, my hometown. And there I was to, to marry my brother. And it was time for the wedding, the day of the wedding. And five minutes after we were supposed to be standing there, it's just me and my brother. His bride is nowhere to be found. So we're getting a little nervous. I'm getting a little nervous. Five minutes, well, no problem. She's just maybe fashionably late, right? You know, who knows what's going on. Something is wrong with her veil. But, but five minutes turned into 15, which turned into 20, which turned into 40 minutes. And at this point, I'm not thinking just fashionably late. Now I am freaking out inside. 
right? Because now I'm thinking not about the liturgy I'm going to walk them through. I'm thinking about the words I'm going to have to say in front of all those people. You know, thank you for your toaster. Please go home. The bride's not here, right? <laughs> That's what I'm having to think about. But I'm also thinking about my brother. I'm thinking about what it'll be like for him when I have to walk over and say, Linda's not coming. When I have to tell him, Linda's not going to make it. You see, we didn't know where Linda was. She wasn't answering her phone. She wasn't responding to our calls. And so I started thinking about my brother. I started thinking about the shame that he would experience in having his bride leave him at the altar. I thought about the loneliness he must be feeling. This feeling that the person that he loves and that he had hoped to spend his life with and this person that he desired to be with, that she left him standing there all alone. You don't need to be left alone at an altar to know that loneliness. We've all experienced it. Right? We go off to college for the first time and we don't know a single soul. We move to a new city. We have friends that we expect to be there in our time of need, in our time of difficulty, but they're not there for us, right? We know what it's like to be alone. We have a spouse, a husband or a wife who's physically present, but emotionally and relationally checked out. And so we know loneliness. We know what it's like. We know the feeling of shame, of putting our hope in someone who doesn't come through and the empty loneliness that comes with it. We know this loneliness. And David knows it too. In verse 16, David refers to himself as lonely and afflicted. As lonely and afflicted. David's surrounded by enemies. This is nothing new in the Psalms. Many Psalms he refers to enemies. And, but he doesn't tell us who these enemies are. We don't know anything about them. But what we do know is that these enemies are tormenting, them, tormenting him. And because of this torment, he feels alone, he feels afflicted. And so what does he do? Well, what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you fill your loneliness with something. Right? We busy ourselves with our thoughts, with relationships, with friendships, with work, with things to do around the house. I have a friend whose wife was diagnosed with a disease many years ago. She has thankfully come through it and is living a healthy life. But initially, in that loneliness, in the experience of that emotion that he was feeling, he did project after project after project. His house never looked so good because he didn't want to sit in the loneliness of his emotion and of his thoughts. And so he busied himself. He filled his thoughts and his emotions with things. That's what we do, isn't it? But what does David do? Well, David waits. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me, let, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And then in verse 21, he says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. David waits for the Lord. In the midst of his torment, in the midst of his loneliness, he waits. To wait for the Lord is, is another way of saying he hopes in the Lord. And that's what we are to do. That we are to place our hope in the Lord. And why? 
Why do we hope for in him? Why do we wait for him? Because of God's commitment. Look at what David says, the language he uses. When he speaks of God, he speaks of God's steadfast love, of God's faithfulness, of God's covenant. This is all language that speaks of God's promises and how God has kept his promises and how God is committed to his people. Which is wonderful to think about, isn't it? Because in our times of loneliness, it feels not just that others have left us, but that God has left us as well. But look at David's prayer in verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. You see, what David is saying is that the love, the same love that God showed to his people, the same faithfulness, the same commitment that his people have known from the very beginning, it continues for his people now. In our loneliness, in our burden, God has not left us. He hasn't left you. He is with his people because he has promised in his covenant that he will be our God and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. He's committed to his people. His commitment is revealed in how David speaks of him, what David calls him. Did you see it? David calls him a friend. In verse 14, David says that those who fear the Lord, for those who fear the Lord, God is our friend. Now, is that a little strange to think about? God's your friend? I mean, that feels a little strange to me, right? Because it's easy for me to think of God as my Lord, as my Savior, as the Creator, as my Redeemer, but my friend, that, that feels a little too casual, doesn't it? Feels a little too irreverent, right? And, and it feels that way because our categories for friendships, so the way that we think about friend now is a friend is the person we talk sports with. A friend is that girl that we get a drink with, right? Our friends are casual relationships. And so when we think about God, well, it, it just seems too casual. But y'all, when the Bible speaks about friendship, it is far deeper and far more significant than our modern notion of what friendship is. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said? Greater love has no one than this than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Y'all think about that. The creator of the universe, the king over the earth, he calls you his friend. You know, we don't call people that we despise friends. We don't call people that we just kind of put up with friends. We call people we're committed to friends. And that's what God says about us. His commitment to us is so much that he would send his son to die for us and make us his friend. Y'all, that's amazing. That sort of commitment. That's the why we wait for the Lord, because of his commitment but what about the how? How do we wait? Well, we wait with repentance. It's what we see in our passage. Just as we saw a few weeks ago, David's concern isn't just for the affliction that comes from outside him. His worry is not just about his enemies, but David looks upon himself and he considers his own moral standing. And when he does so, what does he say in verse 7? Remember not the sins of my youth, 
or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. And then in verse 11, he asked God to pardon my guilt for it is great. David's repenting. He's coming to the Lord confessing his sin. And when he confesses his sin, do you see what he calls it? He didn't say, my guilt, which is small. My guilt, which isn't that big of a deal. My guilt, which is, is minor or inconsequential. No, he says, my guilt, which is great. You see, David understands that to think little of our sins is to deceive ourselves. It's exactly what C.S. Lewis talks about in his wonderful book, Screwtape Letters. Right, that, that book that he tells from the perspective of a demon, the demon screw tape, as he's writing to his nephew Wormtongue. And what he says to Wormtongue to, to lead people into destruction, to lead them into their death, he says this. He says that you are to lead a person to ruin by convincing the person being tempted that their sins are trivial, that they're insignificant. It's what John Owen said, the great theologian, when he said that one of the lies that the devil tells us, the deceptions that we believe, is that our sin isn't that bad. But that's not what David said, is it? David said it is that bad. In fact, it is far worse than we realize. My guilt is great. Do you believe that about your sin? My guilt is great. That our sin is worse than we realize. David does. He realizes that, but he also realizes something else. That as great as his sin is, God's grace is greater still. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 said, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where grace increased, grace, uh, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Y'all, that is good news. That is good news that as great as my sin is, that God's grace is greater. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself and for others? For our repentant friend, do you believe that for them? That there is no sin greater than God's grace. Not sexual sin, not addiction, not corruption, not gossip, not hatred. Whatever your sin may be, it is great, but we, it is not as great as God's grace. So we take our sins before the Lord, and we repent, and we find grace. David said, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And in verse 18, he says, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. I mean, think about it. David knew sin, an adulterer and a murderer. Now, I'm sure none of us, maybe I can venture to say, none of us have ever physically murdered another person. But we've killed reputations. And we've destroyed a person with our words. And we have committed adultery in our hearts. I mean, it was Jesus himself who said that anyone, any man who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we may have not done these things physically, but, 
but we have done them in our hearts and in our minds and with our lips and with our hands, right? We too are in need of grace. And the good news is that God is gracious. David comes repenting because he is confident of God's forgiveness. And so, friends, we wait for the Lord by repenting. But we also wait for the Lord with obedience. You see, repentance leads to obedience. Grace comes before obedience. It's not the other way around. We don't obey God, so he would show us favor. He shows us favor, and we obey in response to that. And that's what David says in verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And then in verses 8 and following, he says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. You see, the response to God's grace, to his kindness, to his steadfastness is obedience to follow his ways. God's grace doesn't give us license to live or to walk any way that we desire, but how he desires for us. That's what David said, right? Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Y'all, this is so different than what we hear in our world, isn't it? I mean, think about like 99.9% .9 of commencement speeches. We didn't hear them this past spring, right? But, but you don't have to think back to this spring. You've, you've heard them before, and inevitably, sometime in the speech, what is the speaker going to say? He's going to say, follow your heart. Live by your conscience. Strike out on your own path. But what does God's word tell us? Not to follow our own way, but God's. Don't follow God's don't follow the ways of the world, but follow God's ways. You see, friends, if we are going to respond to his grace, we respond with obedience in following his ways. And if we're going to do this, it requires two things of us, at least two things. Humility and trust. That's what David says in verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. You see, it is the humble that God leads and the humble who follow him because it is the humble who says, I don't know the path. It is the humble who says, I need you to show me the way. Which is exactly what Thomas said to Jesus. Do you remember? Jesus said, I'm about to go away. I'm about to go to my father, but, but you know the way. And what did Thomas say? He saw, said, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? In essence, Thomas was saying, I know there is a path, I know there is a way, but we don't know where it is, and so Jesus, show us. And what did Jesus say? I am the way, and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the way. What is beautiful about this? is that God's path and his way, his directing of our life, isn't some impersonal direction on a map, but it is a person. It is Jesus himself. And so do you want to know the way of obedience? Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Pray, Lord, I don't know if the path I'm on is yours. 
I don't know if the way that I'm going is your way, and so show me your way. Show me Jesus. That is a humble prayer. That is a humble prayer of obedience. And I have to tell you, when we pray this prayer, y'all, when we humbly obey God in this way, it means he's going to call us to leave behind things that we have held dear. It means he's going to call us to leave aside things that we have invested time and resources in. To follow him obediently requires us to humble ourselves and to give up everything to follow him. That's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? Leave behind your nets and your boat, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead and come follow me. Leave aside father and mother and come follow me. To follow Jesus means that we are willing to give up everything to follow him. To follow his ways. And we leave these things behind and we follow him because he is trustworthy. Because we trust him. That's actually where David began the whole psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. David doesn't ignore his troubles or afflictions or his loneliness, but he turns his attention in trust to the Lord. He trusts that his way, God's ways, are better than ours. That his paths are better than the world's. He trusts that God's leading will take him to the place that he is needing to go. And God's leading does. David says that though his enemies may seek to put him to shame, that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. You see, those who humbly trust in the Lord, we don't find shame, we don't find condemnation, but what we find is a God who is committed to his people. That's why we wait for him. Now, some of you know uh, the story of my brother, Doug. Some of you know that uh, it didn't end with Doug and I standing there 40 minutes after the wedding was supposed to start. Because at 40 minutes, when I was nervous and I was afraid and I was scared and I was concerned for my brother, well, we waited five more minutes. And at 45 minutes, now my brother wasn't standing before me alone, but he was standing with his bride taking vows. And what's amazing about that and what I remember very distinctly is not my fear, not my worry, not even Linda showing up 45 minutes late, but my brother. I remember that in those 40 minutes, my brother wasn't ever worried. And he wasn't ever concerned. In fact, I remember he was walking around the country club talking to the guests and he was laughing. Not at five minutes late, at 30 minutes late, going, isn't this just like Linda? <laughs> to be late to her own wedding. He was not concerned. He wasn't worried. He knew, oh, she'll show up sometime. You know, the, the limo will arrive and she'll come stumbling out and she'll run over to the altar where she's to be married and she'll be disheveled and it'll be chaotic, but, but she's coming. And he was right. He never feared. He never doubted. Linda's limo got stuck in traffic and the, the power was out at the beauty salon and her phone had died. She wasn't trying to leave him alone. She was coming. And my brother was convinced that she would arrive. 
that she was coming. My brother was convinced of her commitment to him. And y'all, as we wait, we can have greater assurance of God's commitment to us. And that is why we wait. That is why we wait, because we serve a God who is gracious to the repentant, who leads the humble in the way that we are to go, a God who is so committed to his people that he would send his son to die on our behalf and call us his friends. And so, y'all, that is why we wait. We wait for him today and tomorrow and until he returns. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have shown your commitment to us in sending your Son, the one who has lived and died and risen again and has given us new life, the one who has forgiven our sins and has called us his, bro his brothers and sisters, has called us his friend. And so we pray that we would now live today as your friends, that we would follow you, that we would obey you, that we would humbly trust you, knowing your ways are better than ours. So help us, Father. Lead us in the way that we are to go. Forgive our sins and draw us to yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, and all God's people said together, amen.